moment. Uh, if you want to do well, you need to work hard. Uh, as the old saying goes, no pain, no gain. Uh, no effort, no result. Or as it was taught to me by the cricket coach, uh, no swing, no ding. Um, no sizzle, no steak. Uh, if you hope for anything in this life, then you need to know that it all comes down to you. To the effort you put in, to the results you achieve. Now on the one hand, of course, there's really no point in me telling you this. After all, I take it, if you've lived them for more than about three weeks, you already know this. Because I want to say, this is what you were taught from the moment you left the womb. From that little pat on the head by the parents, you know, the one, well done, good girl. Uh, to the rebuke you got from the teacher, bad done, bad boy. Uh, from the marks you get here at uni, whether 98 or 42. To your acceptance among your peers and whether you're in or you're out. From the team you make in sport to the promotion you get in work. And I think even to the way you feel about yourself, what is it all based upon? What's it all built around? It's your performance. It's your effort, your work, your results. Friends, we live in a world where performance matters. And I want to say, I saw this just last night at the dinner table at my house, very, very conveniently, given this talk today, where we were eating dinner when my Isabel, my seven-year-old, uh, piped up and started talking about school. And how about in her class, it's all about the marbles. Um, and that was enough for us. It was intriguing enough. We asked, what's the story, Isabel, with the marbles? And she replied, that's what we get for being good. A marble. One marble for every time the teacher decides you've done something good. And, of course, she went on to say, if you get enough marbles, 20 marbles, then you get the prize, a reward for your performance. And then with a kind of shake of her head and the strut of the shoulders and funny little thing with her eyebrows, she said, and I have seven. <laughs> and of course, we all judiciously looked at each other and went, ooh. <laughs> But that's just, isn't it? That's how life works. If you want the marble, if you want the mark, if you want the reward, if you want the promotion, if you want the guy, if you want the girl, then you had better put in the work. And the reason I raise that now, because the question we ask this evening is, is it also that way with God? When it comes to us and him, when it comes to you and him, when it comes to being right with God, is it all about your performance? And if not all, is it at least a little bit? Because you see, according to God, there is almost no more important question to ask than that. You see, that's the question he asks and answers in that passage there in front of us. Let's have a look at it together. Have it in front of you, that passage. Galatians chapter 2. The passage begins, you'll see there, with Paul beginning and continuing the same story he began last week. It begins with Paul insisting again that this message that he shares is the one and only message from God. Do you remember last week? And the way Paul does it this week, the way he kind of extends and, if you like, underlines his argument from last week is, is to show us that his message is both independent from and yet identical to the message the other apostles also shared. See, I wonder, did you notice? Have a look there, verse 1, verse 1. Then, continuing from last week, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas 
taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation. That is, by the way, by God's command, not the apostles. This isn't like Paul was summoned into the principal's office, told to show us your crazy gospel, let's see if it's right. No, I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles. So here's Paul's point. It's an important one. Paul hadn't seen them for 14 years. Paul hadn't seen them for more than half your lifetime, in almost half my lifetime. (laughs) He hadn't got together with them to share the story and share the facts and match the reports. No, his message was completely independent from theirs, without collusion. And more importantly, in the argument he's building here, without coming from them. See, I don't know about you, it in some ways reminds me of those uh, English crime dramas. I don't know if you've ever seen the ones with the kind of, hello, hello, what do we have here? Have you two been getting together and sharing your stories? Did you get yours from him? Did you get yours from him? Paul's answer is, I tried it. Paul's answer is, no, I wasn't even there. This is my alibi. I haven't got my story from them. Because you remember, he's arguing he's got his story from God. And yet, even when they did share stories some 14 years later, even then the other God-appointed apostles, even they recognise that my message is identical to theirs. Paul says, jump down to verse 6, have a look at verse 6. Now, from those recognised as important, and what they were really makes no difference to me, God does not show favouritism, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. Since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. In other words... Just as Peter spoke from God to the Jews, so I, Paul says, speak from God to the non-Jews. You see, what I'm telling you came completely independent from them to me, from God, but what I'm telling you now is identical to what they said. Why? Because this is the same message that comes from God. See, friends, again, it's the same point as last week and just last week. You really can't stress enough how important this is. What we have in our Bibles is not just another opinion or another idea or another message among many, many others. No, what you have printed in front of you and what you have in your Bibles is the one and the only message from God. See, that's going to be very, very important very, very soon because in just a moment, Paul's going to tell us something that no human being has or would ever make up. First, I wonder, did you notice there's an intruder in the argument? In fact, we skipped over the intruder, you might have noticed. An issue that, according to Paul, has snuck in or broken in and threatens to displace the gospel, to push it aside. Did you see it there, verse 3? You see, back there in verse 1 and 2, Paul was happily beating that same drum from last week, arguing his case, it was more of the same, this message is from God. But then verse 3, it just seems to come out of nowhere, doesn't it? I don't know if you noticed when you read it. 
It kind of just intrudes into Paul's argument. Suddenly we're told that Titus was with him, see there verse 3, though he was a Greek and therefore not Jew and not circumcised, even he was not compelled to be circumcised. And I don't know about you, but when I read this section here in the verses here, I think, well, what do you do? What's the point? Why are you suddenly talking about circumcision, Paul? Do you know the reason? It's because it seems someone else was talking about circumcision. Someone else who's introduced to us in these verses, you see there with kind of seedy, secret, sneaky language. Do you see it there, verse 4? False brothers, Paul says. Fake brothers. Pretend Christians. Double agents. And if that's not bad enough, if that hasn't sort of made the hairs in your neck start to stand up yet, they were smuggled in. I'm not sure how, in suitcases maybe. They were smuggled in, do you notice? To spy, verse 4, in secret, verse 4, and in slave, verse 4. It's you, but for me right now, I don't know what's going on yet. So far, it sounds like some kind of James Bond meets Mission Impossible kind of movie thriller. I almost expect to see Daniel Craig or, or Tom Cruise kind of plunge from the ceiling in some sort of black muscle suit. But that's not what happens, by the way. But instead, what does happen is, is that Paul warns us that the consequence of this intrusion is deadly serious. Did you see it there? It's the difference between freedom and slavery. Between having the message sent from God and not having it at all. The question still remains, though, what's the issue? Who is the intruder? We get more of a clue down in verse 11. Now, notice, mind you, it's a different time. Uh, it's a different place. Verse 3, you remember, was in Jerusalem. Verse 11 here is in Antioch. But the issue, it seems, is the same. Both sections are, are linked by the language and the idea of circumcision. You see that the end there of verse 3. And then when you jump back down to the new section, by the, the reference to the circumcision party at the end of verse 12. Now, I have to admit right now, a little bit of a confession. Tim, Tim and I... Tim Curry and I were reading it this week. We couldn't help but have a little bit of a giggle at this point. Uh, the reference to the circumcision party. <laughs> couldn't help but think if there's one party we don't want to be invited to, it's the circumcision party. Come on, everyone, the circumcision party. But, of course, it's not a party, in case you thought we'd kind of party hats and streamers and a cake. It's, no, it's a party like a movement. Um, it's a group. Uh, it's a sect. It's a cult. A cult that insists if you want real Christianity, sincere Christianity, then there's this thing that you must do, this work that you must perform. And, and if you do that, and only if you do that, and usually only with them, well, then and only then will you really be saved and really be safe and really be right with God. You see, whatever was going on, this party, this group, was demanding works. It seems circumcision was at least part of it. It was demanding that, as it always is in human worldly thinking, that there's something you must perform to get yourself right with God. See, here's the thing, it's desperately important that we hear this, even as Christians, especially as Christians. To say something like that 
as it seems they were saying back in verse 3. Well, even to live like that is true, as it seems Peter and even Barnabas were doing here in 11, 12, 13. To act like there's such a thing as a kind of broad, mainstream Christianity, and then there's this other special mainline Christianity. To act like there's this kind of second-class Christianity, and then there's this special first-class Christianity. To act as though there's some kind of work that can set you apart as the special ones as opposed to the general ones. Paul says that is a freedom-robbing, Christ-denying lie. And no matter who it is who says it, even do you notice if it's the great apostle Peter, it must be opposed. That's how serious this is. That's how serious it is to demand a work on top of Jesus in order to be saved. Now, it might just be at this point uh, that you're starting to sort of tune out a little bit and start to think to yourself, oh, a little overdramatic, um, sounds a little far-fetched, a little unlikely, a little bit sort of so 2,000 years ago kind of thing. But um, if that's you, can I tell you that every day on this campus, you and I are facing the same threat? Now, the one thing is, of course, we face it every day because this is simply the way of the world. We, we live in a world where performance matters. And so, of course, what would you expect when it comes to God? Well, we expect that the way to be right with him is through our performance. Just last night, I saw a documentary, former violent criminal. He looks straight down the camera, and what did he say? He had a really messed up jaw. He said, I've done a lot of bad. I've done a lot of good. I just hope when I face God, my good outweighs my bad. understood that. But friends, that's what the world will tell you again and again and again. But it's not just the world out there in documentary land. I wanted to, it's also here at Deakin from those who claim to be Christian. And friends, we want to tell you that if they tell you that, if they tell you that you need to do something to be or become right with God, anything other than merely trusting Jesus, they are false brothers seeking to enslave. And just one such group who says exactly that on this campus is the Melbourne Church of Christ. Just like the intruders in this letter, they claim they are the mainline church. And if you're a Christian, not with them, you're just the mainstream church. They are, according to them, first-class Christians. And you, if you're not with them, are just second-class Christians. Why? Because according to them, just like the intruders here, they insist there's a work you must do with them to be really saved and really safe and really right with God. What is that work? Well, for them, it's baptism with them by them in order, they say, to become a real Christian. Now, at this point, please don't hear me wrong. Please don't hear me speak against baptism. Baptism is given by God, commanded by God. It's his gift to make visible our invisible trust in him. 
It's a sign for his people to declare the salvation we have in Jesus. But the moment you take baptism, or for that matter, anything else, and you make it a work that you must do in order to be saved, the moment you divide Christians by that work done by you, then like the people Paul opposes here, you have demanded works and you've denied Christ. And so, friends, can we say as gently but as firmly as we can, when you come across them on campus, and you almost certainly will, or if you're already meeting with them or going to their church, and some of you might be, you need to listen very, very carefully to what Paul will say next. You need to listen very carefully to Paul as he speaks, remember, from God in the face of this error. What does he say? He says, there is only one way to be right with God, and that is not by what we do, but only by trusting what Jesus has done. There is only one way to be right with God, and it is not and never will be by what we do. It's only by trusting what Jesus has done. See, now, they taught you this from your Sunday school. It's one of the great Sunday school teaching things. The difference between Christianity and any other attempt to be right with God is, in fact, just two little letters. Do you know it? It's the difference between do and done. You see, the world says do. Melbourne Church of Christ says do. If you want to be right with God, then do, do, do. Sounds like a 60s sort of song. But but God says so wonderfully, so freeingly, done. In Jesus, it's done. All you need to do is trust in what he has done. All you need are empty hands of faith to receive the gift that he has to give you. Well, here how Paul says it down there in verse 15. Verse 15. We who are Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners, know that no one is justified, that is declared right, by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We have believed in Christ Jesus, so we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no human being will be justified. See, take it from someone who knows Paul says. No one can be justified, that is, made right with the judge by what they do. And if anyone knows that, Paul says, it's us Jews. Us Jews who left the law to flee to Christ. Us Jews who know that the law can never make us right with God. In fact, the law was never given to make us right with God. See, I wonder if you've noticed so often how people treat the law, or really any works, like they're a, a kind of medicine. Have you noticed this? A kind of cure for your broken relationship with God. As if, as if you just take enough and you just take it right, then you'll be right with God. But Paul said that's not what it's for. Not even the law of the Old Testament. In fact, especially not the law of the Old Testament. The law of the Old Testament, it was less like medicine and more like an x-ray machine. An x-ray machine that you held up to your life and that showed you the sickness within. It showed you just how much you needed God, the great doctor, if you like, of your soul. 
to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And that's why Paul says when Jesus came, we did what any sensible person would do. Having seen the diagnosis, we ran to the doctor. We put our trust in him so we could be right with God. And friends, you and I need to make that mistake. There really is no other way. There is no help from us. There is no co-contribution that we make to Jesus to be right with God. And I had a friend once who was a dentist in Sydney. Expensive place to live, expensive place to be a dentist. And she worked with people who couldn't afford to pay. And so what they had was this kind of co-contribution scheme. And basically it said this, okay, you can't afford to pay for what we're going to do to your teeth. You can't afford to pay for all of it. In fact, it's more than you afford, but you can probably pay for something. So here's what we'll do. You co-contribute. We'll do 90%, you do 10 We'll do a thousand bucks, you do fifteen. You give what you can, we'll sort out the rest. And you want to say, actually, that's a really kind thing to do for people who can't afford to pay. I mean, after all, nobody wants to be a freeloader. Do you want to be a freeloader? That's why you bring chocolates and wine when you go out in someone's house for dinner, by the way. Everyone wants to contribute. But here's the thing, when it comes to Jesus and being made right with him, we contribute nothing. That's Paul's point. Indeed, the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin you need saving from. All we can do is say, that's me, Jesus, over here. I'm another sinner. Please forgive me. And, of course, I want to say straight away, some of us want to say, that can't be right. I mean, it sounds just like Jesus is promoting sin. To which you'll notice there, Paul immediately replies there in verse 17. No! Absolutely not! We identify as sinners in order to be saved. Like a drowning man with one hand up in the ocean, we raise our hands so he'll come and get us. And besides verse 18, he goes on, what's the alternative? What, what, what else do you want? Go back to the law. If you do that, you're right back where you started. You're back hugging the x-ray machine. And all it does is declare you a sinner. If I rebuild the system I destroyed, you only show yourself a lawbreaker. No, Paul says, if the law tells me anything, verse 19, it tells me that the works way of being right with God is a dead end. The only way we have is the trusting in Jesus, trusting Jesus with everything we have way. That's what will save us. And what's more, he says, that's what will change us too. Did you see it there? That's what will give us a reason to live and a reason to love. See, not only does trusting in Jesus make us right with God, but you see there, verse 20, it also makes us one with God. It unites us to his son. So that without a fear of punishment, or a promise of payment, we are now free, free to live for him who gave himself for us. And so Paul says down there in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died for nothing. I mean, if there really was another way, 
then Jesus' cross was a waste of time. And friends, Paul says, Jesus' cross was no waste of time. And that's why we need to look to it alone and him alone, now and always, to make us right with God. Well, as we wrap it up, in that conversation I had with the kids at dinner last night, knowing this talk was coming about the marbles and the rewards and all that sort of stuff, I went on to ask them whether they thought it was the same with God. No, not specifically with marbles, but with the kind of reward system. When your teacher tells you to do better and pull up your socks, I said, do you think it's that way with God? How did they reply? Not quite in unison. They said, no, it's not that way with God. He's different. And then that seven-year-old piped up again and she said, and besides, we can only pull our socks up to our knees. God could probably pull them all the way over our head. <laughs> you know, as I thought about it, in a funny way, she's right. God can do, and indeed in Jesus has done, what we could only hope to do. God has done in Jesus Everything we need, he's done it all. And so you see, in a world where performance matters, when it comes to being right with God and staying right with God, the great news is your performance doesn't. All you can do is trust in him. Let's pray that we do that now. Let's pray. The Heavenly Father, thank you again for this wonderful way of salvation that's been completely done and won in Jesus. We pray for all of us that we would trust in him and in his way. Amen. Thanks, Pete. Um.